Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is author Doug Griffiths. He's author of 13 Ways to Kill Your Community. Doug, who was concerned about the future of rural communities, ran and won his first election to become the sixth youngest person to ever serve in the legislature in Canada. But then he retired from politics in January 2015 after 13 years of service to resume his longtime passion for helping communities find ways to be prosperous and enduring. Welcome to the show, Doug. Nice to have you here. Oh, thank you, Catherine. It's great to be on. What I'd like to do is just... uh, uh, talk about a quote. This is some uh, a quote from you. Uh, millennials are you say millennials are more about socialization and quality of life than previous generations. Uh, they're focused on community building and inclusion, while previous generations were zeroed in on progress and business. They bring back an element their great grandparents embodied, and that's essential to the future. So we're going to today specifically, I guess, be talking about how millennials improve and. Our, our communities and how it's really necessary to engage them so that they stay in our communities. And that's one way of building a community, not killing our communities. So um, millennials, what is their role in engaging communities and helping them to grow? Well, you know, we, every um, new generation has you know, typically been, would say written off, but they get quite criticized by the generations that come before it as being uh, lazy or complacent or having things too easy or not understanding what's necessary to get the job done. I mean, even the baby boomers, their generations that came before them said the same thing about them. And so, uh, which is unfortunate because then we wind up pushing millennials out of of our communities out of our leadership roles and i I mean we group them as millennials but it's it's even some generation xers and the i generation that comes after the millennials and yet they they have um an incredible power and an understanding and appreciation for how important communities are to the future they they're i mean i'm a generation xer and i was told um we all had this impression you're supposed to work 80 hours a week and climb the corporate ladder and get the titles in the car and retire with the gold watch, right? But the millennials, a lot of them came out of university and, and the, the jobs weren't there that they were expecting and the debt is higher than they were expecting. And so they feel a little bit defeated, but they've, they've also grown up with a bit more of an appreciation for enjoying life. That, that you're not supposed to work until you can retire and get that gold watch, and that's your, that's what it's going to say. They're going to say your eulogy. They want to enjoy family, enjoy friends, be part of the community. They they're okay with working 50 or 60 hours a week as long as they they get to enjoy time too. Which is you know people make fun of them because they take pictures of their food, but really they're celebrating that they have their the next meal. They're celebrating the time that they have with friends. They're celebrating quality of life. And I think that component adds a lot to to communities. Right. And that's your area of expertise already, uh, obviously, uh, rebuilding our small communities. And you're saying that millennials uh, 
are, are here and able to do that, right? And they are also referred to you, sure. I guess, as the community therapist. So you're, um, I guess we have to maybe go back a little, make the assumption that these small communities are struggling and that we're not doing the right thing to uh, engage the millennials, to build our communities. We're not doing, we're killing our communities. Uh, so maybe we should maybe talk a little bit about that. Well, how are we killing our communities and how specifically are these millennials? Because you say they are the right, you know, they're the next generation. They have to do this. How are they going to prevent us from killing our communities and really going forth and, and, and building our small communities up? Yeah, well, that's why I wrote the book, 13 Ways to Kill Your Community. It's not about deliberately killing your community. It's about the attitudes that we have that sabotage our own success. And it started when I was a, I mean, I was a rancher, but I was also a, a junior high teacher. And when I was, I would go talk to high school students about how to be successful. And I would say things to them like, you know, study hard, don't do drugs, marry someone nice, right? That's sort of three things you can do to, to be happy. And they'd all look at me like, yeah, we know. But they weren't changing the way they were living based on that. So I went into this classroom one day and just had this epiphany, and I turned to the class and asked them, I want you to describe what it would look like if you ruined your life. Right? What, what would Describe it to me. So they'd say things like, I'd become a drug addict. Right? That would ruin my life. And I would, I, whatever they came up with, I'd write on the board, and then I'd, I'd ask them one by one, pretend that's your goal you want to ruin your life. How would you start today? So let's start with being a drug addict. And somebody would put up their hand. I mean, they're high school students, right? So somebody would say, I would drink too much, or I'd, uh, the answer was usually I'd smoke a joint after school, and two kids would turn red because that's what they did yesterday. Now, they're not meaning to become a drug addict, but suddenly, after we went through the process, everyone was looking at how their day-to-day -day decisions would sabotage or could sabotage their long-term ambitions. And then I realized communities were doing the same thing. I went to communities all over the place where they would, their first question would be, Doug, how do we keep young people in the community? But in between the meeting when we'd be socializing, I'd hear them say, oh, this town's dying. I don't know if we're ever going to succeed. I mean, the businesses keep closing, and pretty soon the, the student population goes down, and we can't, can't attract new investment. And I think you're telling all these people in the room that, that your community has no hope, but then you wonder why young people leave. You want one thing, but you, you sabotage your own success with the other. And it's usually because we, well, it's usually because we trade away what we want most for what, what seems important now. And we need to focus on what's going to build our communities and stop um, adopting those attitudes that sabotage our own success. Yeah, and I think this is true not only in Canada, but in the United States. You can go, uh, I'm in New York, and all these small communities in upstate New York and the small farming communities in and around the, the, the area in New England are, are dying for the very reasons that you talk about in your book. And, and uh, yeah. one of the things that you do... In, yeah, and they are. Yeah, and it's obviously, I mean, that's not a good thing. Uh, but one of the things that you say, maybe we can address this, um, it's, and I think this is sort of the mantra that you hear, we have to keep these, these young people from not leaving. But you say, and this is what I want you to focus on, but, and you, you obviously alluded to this, but we have to provide them with the reason to want to return, like when they go away to school or they go away to college. Not just trying, forcing, keeping them from leaving, but they have to want to come back and not want to go back necessarily to just the big cities, which, yeah. Exactly. We, we 
that's I tell people who ask me how do we keep young people in our community that that's the wrong attitude. I I picture I'll go walk up Main Street and I'll see young people chained up to mailboxes and light posts so they can't get out of town. The nature of youth is to go off and explore, to go try new things, to go experiment. You hope not with bad stuff, but they're also going to learn new ideas and have acquire new ways of thinking. New, I, when they, you want them to come home, and I tell everyone that I call them boomerang strategies, right? You, 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 if you're successful at throwing a boomerang, you give it enough momentum in the right direction that it comes back to you. And that's what you want. You want your young people to go learn and bring those new ideas home and a new energy and appreciation for your community. And then you need to listen to the new ideas that they have and try and implement them. I mean, I've, I've been to community meetings where I've heard some young people suggest some really keen and cool ideas for what the community can do. And I've, I've watched the natural response from so many people. And I mean, I've heard this literally is, no, we better not do that because we've never tried that before. Well, that's the point. <laughs> if what you're doing isn't working, it's time to try something new. But we often don't. We hold on to the past. I mean, each of these are a, a chapter um, holding on to the past and rejecting anything new and not engaging youth, but not engaging your seniors either. There's so many things we need to turn around our thinking in order to be successful. That's why I get invited to speak. I'm going to Texas and Idaho and uh, Montana and Georgia and because it, this is a, a problem that's not um, just in Canada. It's pervasive around North America and probably around the world. And yet yeah. I, and you know, our communities are worth saving. Yeah, they are worth saving. I think you're absolutely, it's not just endemic to Canada. It, it is, the United States and around the world. But I think it's also, and it, it's interesting, I mean, you're obviously you're focused on small communities, but if you think about even what's happening today here in the United States, our government, uh, you know, we have a 70, 71-year-old president, and we have a lot of old white men sort of governing the country uh, or in positions of power. So it really is sort of all up and down the line. There's some resistance to having this next generation. Well, you're Gen X, but the millennials are even younger than you. Sort of take over, listen to them, embrace their ideas. Um, where does that come from? I, you know, we all, every generation thinks they're the smartest one in history and the next one has it too easy and they don't understand what's going on. And so there is a, a resistance, especially since the older we get, the less inclined we are to adapt to change. But frankly, the world's going to change more. It's another presentation I have. The world's going to change more in the next 15 years than it has in the last 150 years. And with it's going to be in education and in healthcare. And the interesting thing is that millennials are so used to operating in that new environment. And it's, it's why they think differently than us. Um, we're, I'm supposed to climb the corporate ladder and work 80 hours a week to get there. And yet millennials are so used to working in online environments. They, you have a, older folks that say, oh, no, you just want power and authority now as a millennial. You don't want to work for it or earn it. But it's not that. It's that they've been in uh, online environments that are flat where your ideas matter more than titles, right? You're in this, this sort of nameless community, and so credibility gets given for the quality of the ideas you have, not the title you have. And so millennials sort of feel excluded or get pushed out because one generation says, you don't have enough authority yet, and the millennials look at each other and say, who cares? Good ideas are good ideas. And so we miss that. And I, I know, I, even, um, you know, we have the same discussion in Canada, this 
return to coal or this firing up of coal. I, I have a section of the book that specifically talks about how many communities are holding on to what used to be, and I've, I was invited to one to help them try and find what their future was going to be. But everyone I interviewed and everyone I talked to kept talking about how the coal mine would reopen. It had been closed for almost 10 years, but it was going to reopen. And I finally advised the town, you know, you can you could change the title of the town, the, the slogan, to still waiting for the mine to reopen. And until you get over that, um, you're never going to look for the next opportunity. And they had amazing opportunities, but they just were focused on a return to, to the way things used to be. And that's, that's a great way to kill your community. Yeah, if and I also, can do you emphasize, the older generation dies off because then I, I think that's waiting. As you say, we're going to do more. What in the next fifteen years, more things are going to be, or could be, or should be, or will be accomplished than in the past one hundred and fifty years, um, because things are accelerating at such a fast pace. Are there any, um, Doug? Are there any communities? That you set up, that you give as an example, who are doing the right thing. Say you're gonna, you said you're gonna give a lecture. You're gonna be speaking in Texas. You're gonna be speaking in some of the rural communities in the United States. Um, what what small communities are doing it right, and how uh, are they doing we, it right? How do you change the attitudes of the older? Yeah, generation? that's it, it. That's a really good question, and I I know that's why a lot of our clients say that we're not really consultants. We're more like community therapists because we. We go in and help change some of those attitudes, but it still takes uh, a few leaders to, to, to instigate the change. So we were in Craig, Colorado, which I, I can't believe the, how amazing the work they've done uh, is. They brought us in just for a couple of days, and they, you know how um, every organization has their own plan, right? So there was a, a plan for the Chambers of Commerce and a plan for the Downtown Business Association and a plan for the town and a plan for infrastructure. And a, we, we, they brought everyone together. There were about 80 people in the room representing about 30 different organizations. And they had, instead of looking to the municipality and, and the, the mayor, um, they actually prioritized what they needed for a whole community and didn't just say, okay, it's the elected officials that have to do it. And every week I've seen a new column in the paper come out about some next step they've taken, how they're beautifying the community, new businesses they've attracted, the new land development that they have. And it's started with a couple of local leaders um, who, who really embraced it. Well, they they read the book, I guess, but then they really embraced that they wanted to do things differently. There's Wasaga Beach in Ontario that was a beautiful community roaring in the 70s, and then it just sort of fell off, and they have reinvented themselves. And it's amazing to watch the progress they've made. Again, I watched the, the papers to find these success stories, but there are communities of all sizes that are finding their uniqueness, which is usually where you start, uh, letting go of the past, and then actively working on what they're going to to be in the future. And they change their attitude so that everyone believes in what the community can do instead of feeling failed and like it's hopeless and waiting for someone else to come along and fix their, their challenges. Well, I think you're, uh, obviously, I think you're right on track. I mean, if you, and I'm sure you're familiar with, you know, Michael Bloomberg. I mean, that's what he, our former uh, mayor of New York City uh, for three terms and billionaire. And he says, um, sort of, you know, the future of our futures are really um, 
in our small communities, in our communities, you know, in our small communities, medium-sized communities, but we have to look back towards our communities for leadership and guidance and participation. So, um, yeah, and it's, it's all community. Com- yeah. It's all community. But now there's, just- there's all sides. Within New York, there are communities. I mean, we all typically belong to over 100 communities, whether we realize it or not, and we deeply associate with close to 20. I, I usually tell people it's 13 because I like that number, but um, we connect with them. So the community in which we live, our professional association is a community. Our family is a community. Our friends are a community. The, we, we all belong to different communities, and so that's why I didn't call the book How to Kill Your Small Town, because it's not about that. It's about any kind of community. It could be the, uh, the community of radio talk show hosts that have something in common. And what they do as an association or as an organization or as a group of people to bring about their success or sabotage it if, if they're not paying attention. When you talk about in your book, uh, well, getting back to specifically your book, 13 Ways to Kill Your Community, you do mention certain, and maybe I think these are good to mention because um, the, the, there are pillars, uh, four pillars for building a stronger community, right? Or stronger communities. Maybe we should touch on some of those because I think those are really the key. Um, they are the pillars for building a stronger community. And we kind of didn't mention those in the beginning. But what are well, they? Well, there are lots of pillars. I mean, and they fall into different groups. So there are groups of uh, people. Um, so it's outsiders who have a new perspective on your community and chose to live there on purpose, or it's immigrants that have an incredible appreciation for the opportunity that lays in your community and your country, the seniors that often help build our communities and, and want a quality of life and are used to volunteering and want to continue to do that, and young people that have an interesting new perspective and can help you prepare for change. But it's also... Uh, the other four, another four pillars of a community are health, education, economic development, and community infrastructure. And so, you know, education is critical if you're going to attract young families. Healthcare is critical for everyone. Uh, it's just fundamental um, and a basic need and right, I think. Uh, and then there's and we economic have to add another word to that, healthcare, but you have to have, at, and I say you mentioned this, uh, access to healthcare. You have to, you yeah. know, it can't, healthcare sort of can't just be there, but you have to, it has to be accessible, whether it's in a small community or a large community. That's really yeah. number one, I would say. Exactly. It, it is critical. Um, and, and everyone who's ever had a health crisis knows that if you don't have your health, you don't have anything. And yet, and when we measure, you can measure the economic impact to a community, to a state, to a country about with not having proper health care, and it's devastating. And we, we usually think about you know, physical health care and treatment in times of crisis, but it's also mental health. It's, it's all aspects of health care that cost our economy a fortune. And even when we try and cut back and try and save on, on health care, it winds up costing us all more in the long run. And then there's economic development, which is jobs and growth and prosperity and entrepreneurship, which I think we undervalue too many times. I, being a former politician, I, I cringed at how often we would talk about creating jobs. But in this, the way the economy is evolving now, it's not about jobs. It's about careers, and it's about lifelong learning. So our economy is, is directly tied also to our uh, education and the access to it. Uh, because right now, I mean... You try and train someone to be anything, an accountant, uh, 
an anesthesiologist, and you have to train them how to adapt to the new technologies that are coming fast. Because by the time, from the time they start school till they finish, the technology has changed. So that's critically important. And the last one we always miss that fourth pillar is community infrastructure, and it's everything that is about quality of life. And I emphasize to some of our larger urban centers that we do work with. Uh, who, you know, they say, well, we're a city, we're not a town. And I tell them the community is a community. And so when you focus on quality of life, we, we build suburbs now, but the world is changing. Autonomous vehicles, I mean, we still build houses with three-car garages on the front, and millennials won't even want to own a vehicle. They're not going to have the same sort of attachment we do to it as a status symbol. Uh, the billions of dollars we're going to put into subway systems and public transportation, people say how you know, autonomous vehicles are going to kill a lot of automobile companies. I think they're going to kill public transportation, frankly. So it, it, the way we're designing our communities, millennials don't want to commute two hours to get downtown to work in an office tower because it's not about the stature. They want a creative environment, so they go to micro companies and, and small businesses to look for new opportunities where the title doesn't matter as much as their intelligence and their contributions do, which means they want to work in a small environment. They like to bike to work or walk to work and then stop and have a coffee on the way home and see their friends and socialize, which means that instead of suburbs, we need real communities with with buildings, office buildings in those communities. Not where the, the Right now, the only jobs in suburbs typically if you're going to you know, work at the gas station or retail. And, and our, our cities have to build more intelligently than that. Yeah, well, retail right now, more. and if you go to any of these malls in, in uh, suburbs, are, uh, they're dying. I mean, the retail stores are closing. The paradigm is shifting people. Millennials particularly are buying everything. Amazon just, you know, uh, bought Whole Foods. I mean, millennials yeah. buy their food online. They buy everything online, and uh, that's probably not too much of an exaggeration. So that's all changing. Yeah, and so when you um, think too many communities are still working on economic development strategies that are about selling commodities downtown, and they have to remember that our, our downtown businesses were about socialization, the, the downtown core. And so it's about recreation and social activities and services that you can't buy online. Right. I mean, I know that I still have have folks laugh at me, but it's about stuff like coffee shops and yoga studios and art galleries and things that give people a reason to socialize. That's what our downtown core needs to be about if we want our communities to survive and grow and prosper. Well, it's interesting you should say that because I think one of the things is they've been saying for many years that, you know, libraries were dying, uh, which actually is, is, is not the case. Libraries are actually kind of proliferating. People go to libraries for the very reason they go to a coffee shop where they can gather together and get information and also communicate and connect with other people, um, so, and, which is another example of what you're saying, and, and you need those kinds of, uh, or you know, institutions, organizations in your community, in one's communities. But we have to engage the next generation, the two generations down to, to do that, and um, I guess that's your task, right? Yeah, well, I think it will help also naturally evolve because millennial, the population of millennials in the I generation are going to soon be the majority, the majority that shops, the majority that lives in our communities. They'll become the leaders, and they are going to be the majority voters. And so they're going to be adapting to new change, the changes that are coming, uh, and you need to get them engaged 
and they'll help you adapt. They'll help your community adapt if you let them. So you're going to be going around, talk to us, because we only have a few minutes left, but Doug, talk to us about like what you're doing like here in the States. I mean, you mentioned a few places that you're going to speak, so do you have a whole, uh, you know, obviously there are certain places that you pick, certain states, certain ta- towns. Um, what's your itinerary? What are you going to do? I mean, how are you? Well, we have a, a couple of places to go to this summer, but I we haven't been doing a um, we've only been going to speak where people have invited us. So it's typically chambers of commerce, uh, municip- a state and provincial municipal associations, uh, economic development teams or networks uh, that have invited us to come and do uh, keynotes, either on 13 ways or how everything's going to change. So um, it's where we're invited to. And, uh, you know, when we go and speak, I, I, I like, I'm glad you mentioned libraries because we donate books to the libraries wherever we go and speak to make sure anybody can access the, the information and go and book. But um, it's, it's actually kind of interesting. I'm not sure uh, where people are hearing about it except through maybe radio shows like yours. Um, but that's why we've got invitations from Georgia and Alaska, uh, Illinois. Uh, we haven't booked any of them yet, but they're lining up for the fall and into the new year. So if anyone's interested, they can check our website out. It's uh, www.13ways13way.ca, um, although I think .com will refer you to that too. So uh, if anyone ever is looking for more information. So, okay, that's the website we can go to. We can, uh, I assume, also uh, purchase your book, uh, but then get more information about who, when you say just, we only have two minutes left, but when you say we, how big is the organization? Who's we? Uh, we're up to seven people now. Um, we have a managing director that sort of organizes the schedule and and the consulting work. And then I've built a team really organically with people who get 13 ways. Because none of us are just consultants. We really work on helping to change um, the attitudes in the community to make sure that they're going to be successful for the long term. Because any consultant can come in and write a report on an economic development strategy or a strategic plan or tourism development strategy. We want to make sure that we find uniquenesses and help you let go of the past and prepare for the future. Because, like I said, I, our communities are the most important um, foundation for building everything. I mean, if you have strong communities, then families can take care of themselves and they can take care of each other. And then you wind up with a prosperous nation. But we need to focus on community building. That's the, that's the foundation of, of a great nation. Well, great to have you here today. Uh, thanks so much for being on the show. Um, doing the good work. Uh, Doug Griffiths. And he is AKA the community therapist and author of 13 ways to kill your community. Well, uh, we're going to take a short break now. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox show. Streaming live the leader in internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Fire can destroy your home, your business, and your life in seconds. On Speaking of Fire, with co-hosts Mike Schlattman and Donna Ingram, we investigate fire, the origin and causes, and provide important information to prevent accidental fires and save your life, loved ones, and your property. 
We speak to experts about technology, investigative research, and insurance issues with regard to fire. Tune in Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Richard Nesbitt, author of Results at the Top, Using Gender Intelligence to Create Breakthrough Growth. Uh, Richard is president and CEO of Global Risk Institute. He is also an adjunct professor at the Rotman School of Management of the University of Toronto and a chair of the advisory board of the Mind Brain Behavioral Hive at the same university. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Richard. Yeah, nice to be here. So we're going to be talking about your book, Results at the Top, Using Gender Intelligence to Create Breakthrough growth. So when we talk about gender intelligence, first of all, what are we talking about specifically? And how are we going to use that to create, as you say, this breakthrough growth? Well, gender intelligence is used to distinguish uh, uh, the need to have a way, a very much more sophisticated approach to, to strategies uh, when it comes to the area of gender diversity. So it isn't just about gender parity. It isn't just about gender balance. Um, it's, it's about more than that. And it's about uh, uh, having the right strategies for putting uh, the two genders together, men and women, uh, and also having, you know, picking the right people uh, to be part of those strategies. And so uh, the use of gender intelligence and sort of uh, and doing things in a way that, um, that works with the strengths of the different genders uh, will improve your organization and, and, and cause you to, um, 
uh, uh, have better financial results and better other kinds of results. So it just isn't about the numbers. It's about the type of people that you work with as well. Okay, but we are talking about uh, financials. We're talking about producing, you say, superior financial performance in in organizations if we do this. But obviously, we haven't been doing this. There's there's been a lot of talk about this, actually, for many years, right? And there have been books written about it. But when it really comes down to the stats, exactly how many, what do you say here, that uh, today women still make up less than 5% of CEOs at S&P 500 companies. Why? Well, the uh, research on this topic has really, uh, like really serious research um, coming out of universities, etc., uh, is really about 20 years old now. So, so in the, in the scheme of life, that's not a long period of time. Uh, and I would say that if you look at over the 20, 30-year period of time, certainly that I've worked in financial services, um, uh, I think uh, you've seen quite a quite an, uh, 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 quite a change, and I think that change is starting to accelerate. Now, if you're uh, a senior woman who's looking uh, and not seeing those opportunities, I can understand why you would think it, that uh, progress is slow. But uh, you know, when you compare it on more a historical context, thirty years ago, even fifty years ago, hundred years ago, women have made tremendous progress, and and one indication of that is the things that they're doing themselves in order to um, uh, uh, make sure that they have the necessary background for uh, to to work in business. Uh, more than 50% of graduates from universities now are women. And that number in the next decade will hit 60% of graduates from universities. Uh, so women have made tremendous progress, but not enough uh, and, and in politics and in some other fields. But in my view, uh, our companies are not performing as well as they could because they haven't made as much progress in, in the in the boardrooms and in the C, C-suite. Yeah, that seems to be where the progress has not been made, as you're talking about, because when you talk about, yes, women getting MBAs, I have a son who graduated from Wharton, and I think the class was about half and half, you know, uh, in yes. terms of getting their MBA. They do well when it, they, women seem to do well in academic environments, but when it actually, as you say, when it gets to having to, you know, rise to the top and be in the boardroom, it doesn't seem to work out. And, you know, okay, 20 years, but still, um, I, I don't know how much progress we make on a yearly <laughs> basis. Um, well, you, you haven't, made enough pro- haven't made enough progress, but, we, but progress has been made. Boardrooms are now about 20% uh, women. Uh, directors of boards are now about 20%. You know, t- 20 years ago, that number would have been a much, much smaller number. Uh, I don't can't t- quote it off the top of my head, but it would have been definitely a lot smaller. Now, the question is, but is 20% good enough? No, it isn't, right? And the companies are underperforming because it's, it's only at 20%. Give us an example, for instance, what, how, you know, very specific, a story, an example of uh, why companies are underperforming and relate that specifically to, say, what women have to offer in the right. company that the company's not getting. Well, um, let's start with the board. Uh, the board um, and many, you know, many companies are still made up of boards that are entirely men. Um, you know, uh, you know, close to half the companies are, uh, uh, you know, are entirely men. Now, you know, the larger companies have have uh, changed, but the smaller companies generally often have not. the The addition of one woman into a board of directors, where there are no board of directors, research has proven that that will 
uh, virtually immediately begin to improve their financial results of an organization. And here's why. Uh, when you have all of one kind of person in a room, you get into this sort of straight-line thinking, and everybody comes from the same background, and they all think the same way, and they, they actually have less discussion than a board probably needs to have, and that's if everybody's all the same. When you introduce a new person who comes from a different background, who happens to be a woman, whose whole experience is different, and who, uh, who uh, comes at life in a different way, it changes the dynamics of the board, and so not only does that change the dynamics of the board, it changes the behavior of men. It's been shown that as you add women to boards, even the men improve as board members as well. So the, um, it's the difference between men and women and putting them together to work together that makes all of the difference. Uh, and I've seen that in my career uh, running a bank or running a stock exchange, uh, where groups that were composed of a, a, a diverse group of people, men and women, would perform superior to uh, if it was all men. I suppose the same thing would be if it was all women, but I never had that opportunity to work with groups that were all women. Uh, uh, so in my experience, that has been a successful strategy for me to move ahead in my career by engaging with uh, men and women of both uh, genders in order to um, uh, improve the company. Let's talk then specifically, what do we have to offer? Men and women, okay, we are different animals, so you're putting right. two different animals in the situation and you have different things to offer. What specifically do we have to offer that's going to obviously move the company forward, change men's attitudes? Right. Uh, yeah. What are those qualities? Yeah. Well, uh, and that's, a, by the way, your thought there is actually uh, becoming the current thinking that men and women are different. Their brain chemistry and brain makeup is different. And they bring different skills and different uh, experiences to a board setting or a, or a management setting. And by, uh, if you had gone back 30 years ago, there was really a view that, well, uh, we should we should assume men and women are not different. We should assume they're the same, and therefore we should uh, we should not uh, try to manage. We should manage them the same, and we should just expect that um, women will um, uh, 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 be more like men. Okay. I always take a look at you know say uh, Prime Minister of England Margaret Thatcher. You know, if we if we just had more, you know, 30, 40 years ago, if we just had more women like Margaret Thatcher, this would all correct itself. Well, that's completely wrong thinking. Uh, women, the value of uh, of uh, gender uh, intelligence and gender uh, diverse strategies is that men and women are different, and they bring different experiences. Uh, and so, women, it's been shown in the research that women, uh, when added to a board, will engage in more discussion. Uh, they will ask more questions. Uh, and that actually shakes up the board a little bit because the board got into a habit when it was only men. Uh, well, you know, we won't ask too many questions. We'll just let Joe. Joe's a good guy. We'll just let Joe what he wants to do. Uh, women come in and they don't have that uh, view. Their view is their job is to ask questions, and they ask a lot of questions. Um, and they engage in more dialogue. Now, the men then say, well, hey, wait a minute here. We've got to get in there and ask more questions, too. And, it, and, and so it improves the men as well. And that's one of the big dynamics on a board. The other thing that's been shown in some of the research is that uh, in, the, in the event of a crisis, 
women uh, board members tend to get more uh, directly involved. In other words, they, they, they double down on their engagement at the time of a crisis. So a crisis, for example, like a CEO uh, dies or a CEO is terminated, uh, women have been shown to actually get more involved in the work of the board versus um, what they're seeing in their male counterparts. So uh, so that's another good quality. Yeah, well, perhaps women, Richard, are more uh, resilient. The word resilient, you know, this, uh, that word is like, uh, you know, a trendy word today that people who do the best, you know, do the best or are those who are more resilient, who are able to um, move ahead when there's a crisis. And, and do you think maybe w- women, just given the nature of who they are, they are more resilient. They have to be physiologically, I would say. Um, and <laughs> we won't get into that, but I think that's well, true. Well, yeah, I don't know. See, see, I try to avoid, uh, because because of what I've accepted is that they are different, They're you know, and they bring different skills. I, I try not to say one skill is, is better, like, you know, this skill in a woman is better than that in a man, right? It's, it's, but it's it's the working together that that uh, sees the overall improvement uh and without that you you have sort of a very monoline kind of straight line kind of approach you have that male approach which is uh you know by the way uh, uh, that's a very strong approach and 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 you know that has resulted in a lot of successes you know uber came from the drive of an individual who happened to be a male who had an idea and he drove that thing forward. Unfortunately, you know, a, a, a time comes along when those skills are really seen to be, uh, they're really not the only skills you really want to employ in a situation. And, uh, you know, we're seeing some of the impacts at a place like Uber, uh, you know, by not having a diverse set of approaches and diverse set of opinions uh, being um, debated. So I would say, I don't want to say one is better than the other is what I'm telling you. Like men have really great strengths and women have really great strengths and put them together. There's going to be conflict sometimes. Yes, there is going to be conflict. I'm not saying that this is without conflict, but the result is going to be better for the organization. Well, and they have the strengths, but they each have their own weaknesses. And I guess that's, you know, and the what exactly. perhaps may be viewed as a weakness in men can be made up by the women and, and vice versa. So right. that, I assume, would be a good thing. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly yeah. correct. Be, and, uh, and, 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 and they feed off one another. And you, get, you actually end up over time getting the best of both worlds. Now, what do you see for the different types or different kinds of companies? Do these things make a difference? Like, you know, you have more of traditional companies, and I'm yeah. just naming, you know, and then you have the new companies like Google and Apple and right. Amazon and all those. Any kind of glaring differences? Yeah. In- well, different industries yeah. have different industries have uh, uh, pursued this in different intensities. Uh, 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 financial services ha- is. Um, has done a reasonable job in this. I wouldn't say they, they're where they need to be, but they've actually, uh, for a whole bunch of reasons, mainly because most of their uh, majority of their employees are women, and you know at least half their customers are women, right? So they've actually adopted a lot more proactive strategies in financial services uh, in order to uh, try to capture some of the value of having uh, more women in leadership. Some other industries have not done as well. Some of the extractive industries, for example, although that's not unique. Um, to uh, to every company, we we have companies mentioned in our book, Tech Resources, who's a very forward thinker, uh, who happens to be in the mining industry. Uh, so it, it it becomes more company by company, but some industries haven't done as well. And you mentioned uh, 
the companies which we often call Silicon Valley, you know, they've, they've struggled. Uh, you know, everybody thought because they're populated largely by millennials, young people born, you know, 1990 to 2010, uh, 2010 that, um, that somehow that would uh, improve their performance in, in terms of gender intelligence, gender success. And in fact, we haven't seen that really. They, they struggle just as much as, as traditional industries. Uh, and the reason for that is because um, people are people. And millennials are no different. Millennials are uh, men and women. And they are products of, you know, hundreds of thousands of years of evolution. And they're wired the same as their parents were or their grandparents were. And so while they are more accustomed to seeing women in senior roles, they're still the same type of people. And so they have the same issues uh, as their parents did or grandparents did. And they have to work hard on, um, on uh, employing these strategies uh, because it's no easier for, it's no easier for them than it was for their parents. Yeah, and they were also raised by baby boomers, uh, so <laughs> we have to think about that. You're talking, you know, their parents and their grandparents. But uh, how do you change? The, you know, changing attitudes is yeah. not easy. Well, know, so the book uh, we've we've the book we've written is directed at men, and uh, because I really think, and Barbara, uh, my co-author, really thinks that. Uh, the next stage in uh, improvement and, and progress in this area will come about because men are engaged. And we're starting to see that. We're seeing that in, in groups like the 30% Club and uh, based out of London and also uh, Women in Capital Markets and other organizations uh, where the, 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 um, uh, the reason for being is to get men engaged and get men working with women on solutions, right? So I actually think that this is a, a little bit of a snowball that's about to go downhill and get, gain momentum, and we're seeing more and more men. We need to move more men from that passive kind of, I'm not against this, but it's not my problem, uh, into, uh, well, it is my problem because if I do this, it'll improve my company. And so we need, we need to move more men into that sponsorship category, that they're really sponsoring this and they're using this as a tool to improve their organization. And they'll do better because of it. And, of course, the women uh, uh, that, that are part of that team will also do better. What about the uh, graduate schools? Well, I mentioned uh, Wharton and yeah. uh, all the, the you know, yeah. uh, Harvard, Stanford, the uh, MBA programs. Are they doing anything? Uh, to- yeah, they're, they're all working hard. Um, uh, I'm familiar with the University of Toronto, of course, because I teach there. The Rotman, uh, the undergraduate commerce program is actually 57% female. So you actually are seeing that, that trend towards more women getting uh, degrees than men, which actually has certain <laughs> really interesting uh, implications for the future, you know, labor pool uh, and where, you know, good people are going to come from. Clearly, you're going to have to go after more women because that's who has the, the, the education. Um, uh, uh, graduate schools are not quite as good. They tend to be in sort of the 30 to 35 percent, although it could be some schools are better than that. I don't know. But they're actually seeing the number of um, uh, applicants in, in uh, female applicants growing faster than male applicants. So that's starting to change. Uh, it's gone up quite a bit since when I did a graduate program, which was, you know, mostly male. Uh, you're at around 30, 35% generally in graduate business schools now. But that's, that also shows a little bit of the problem 
If when you do your graduate intake and your target, as it often is, is I want to do a balanced 50-50 graduate male-female intake, if you're only recruiting at a graduate business school that is 30% uh, uh, women to men, then you are, are automatically behind the eight ball because your pool that you're competing for with everybody else is very small. So what one of the strategies is, is go beyond the business schools. Go to the commerce program, which is 57% female. Go to the uh, other schools, you know, the arts. And you're seeing companies start to do this. They're going away from the traditional places where they hired people. And they're going a much, much broader uh, uh, group of people. Google does it. Uh, Goldman Sachs does it. Uh, Royal Bank of Canada does it. Uh, you're seeing them go to other institutions to hire intake graduates so they can achieve that 50-50 balance at intake. Yeah, so they're not just taking from that, as you say, much more narrow pool. Well, right. as a professor, like you are, you are a professor, so you have direct contact and connection with the students. Um, any interesting stories that you have, or any opportunities for you that you thought, well, hey, I really made a difference. I had the opportunity to make a difference in terms of attitude change with uh, well, we'll take males because your book is directed at at, right. uh, at yeah. males. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, so I run a, a mentoring program every year at the school uh, where I have 10 uh, female and 10 male students. And I, 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 these are students that are interested in financial services going forward when they, when they graduate from the master's program, MBA program. And so I, we have a number of uh, counseling, uh, counseling sessions and we have a number of uh, meetings that we have with uh, major banks and insurance companies. Uh, my, my story on that is, look, I've been impressed by how committed um, both the men and women are. And I really don't see a lot of difference, i got to tell you, uh, at that level. Um, these uh, young women are entirely uh, committed to their success, and they're kind of doing what they need to do. In order, and remember, they've, got, they've, they've quit a job and come back to get an MBA, right? So that's a, ma- that's a major commitment right there. And MBAs aren't cheap uh, these days. Uh, and so um, the women are, like, I've been very impressed uh, it didn't surprise me, but I, I you know, I, I do note that uh, the ten women that, that I'm mentoring uh, are, in terms of their drive, indistinguishable from the men. Now they have different they have different strengths and weaknesses than the men, and the men have different strengths and weaknesses from the women. But I would say that their drive is equal, and I see that in industry as well. I had a, quite a few people. Uh, uh, um, uh, women managers working for me, which which I couldn't distinguish their drive from any men that I work with, and um, and so I think that you know when you get that in your head as a senior executive, that um, you 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 have to most people hire people that are like themselves, and that's a problem, right? No, yeah, I wish everybody was. I wish I wish everybody was like me. If everybody was like Richard Nesbitt, we, the world would be a fine place. Well, no, it wouldn't actually, because that's not going to happen either. So, and it wouldn't be a fine place. And so, you have to when everything you do as a man, I would say as a woman too, but I'm not telling women what to do. I'm telling men what to do. Uh, as a man, you have to ask, why do you think this way? Why are you doing this? Why are you only going to the graduate business school to hire graduates? Why are you doing that? Uh, why, when you look at candidates to interview, you're only looking at men candidates, and you convinced yourself that no women candidates applied? Uh, why, why do you... Th- don't just do it. 
because you're falling back on um, uh, comfortable behavior that you're wired to do, right? Your 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 childhood years wired you to do a certain thing. Uh, uh, think about what you're doing, and and what you need to do is is employ some of the techniques that are in our book. Uh, once you've thought about what you're doing, then employ these techniques, and that's how you'll succeed in getting more women in your management team. So you really have to be really aware of what your oh, motives yeah. are, where yeah. you, and obviously those are the kinds of things that you cover in the book. We only have a few minutes left, so I just want to ask, because you mentioned, you know, in your experience, the men and women or the males and females have the same drive, but do they have the same goal? You know, is, are women, do you think, so committed necessarily to making the six figures, for instance, in a short period of time? Or is are those, those kinds of specific goals different, even though the drive is the same? Yeah. Well, um, in look, the answer is everybody. everybody's an individual. Some of those women do have that drive. I, I know some of them. I've met some of them. I, I know that they, they're, they're just like me. They're not going to be happy till they reach the top of the mountain. Then they're going to realize there's no top of a mountain. There's always another mountain, right? Uh, they're just like that. And, uh, and some of those women are like that. Some women are not like that. But by the way, some men are not like that either. I spend a lot of time talking to uh, the students about, you know, uh, you know, really, you need to really think about what you're doing. You need to be a well-rounded individual uh, because, uh, you know, get involved in community activities, have something in the arts in addition to your work in business, because that'll actually make you more valuable longer term to the organization. Uh, they're looking for balanced people in organizations, not people who the only thing they do is work and then burn themselves out. So, so, like, I think men could take a lesson in that as well. Um, but, you know, I think it comes down to very much the individuals. Um, so I don't, know if, <laughs> I don't know if I could generalize in that at all. Most of the men that I know aren't as driven towards making as much money as they can. We see those people on TV and in the movies, and they do exist. But most people aren't like that. Most people want to have a good life. And you don't you don't need to you don't need to make uh, you know uh, uh, you don't need to be like the Wall Street uh, from the movies in order to have a good life. Most people just want to have a good life, and they want to do things that interest them. Yeah. So most people are, you're saying male and female in your experience. You only have two minutes left. Are seeking some kind of a balance, a good you know. Oh. Yeah, and those are actually the best employees. Whenever I recruited people, I would always ask them. I wouldn't ask them about you know how to how to do a. Uh, discount of cash flow or something like that, I would ask them, uh, tell me what else you do besides work, right? And um, I would, might ask them a question about politics or something to see whether they actually had a world view on things. Uh, and, and so what I was always looking for those kinds of people, because in the long run, those are actually going to be more valuable because they're more thoughtful people. If all they're thinking about is how to do the next trade, uh, that actually is going to burn itself out at a certain point in their career. Yeah, because that's, that's fairly narrow. We have one minute left. So, Richard Nesbitt, it's been great talking to you today. I want to mention your book again, Results at the Top, Using Gender Intelligence to Create Breakthrough Growth. I assume that we can buy it at Amazon bookstores everywhere. Uh, could you yes. give us a website we can go to? Yeah. Yes, yes, absolutely. And, uh, yeah, I hope people – I want uh, as many people to see it because I want to get that message out. Because, it, you know, if we can just get another 1%, 2 3%, 4% of men – to think this way, it will start to change the world. And there, that snowball will really pick up speed. Thanks for being on the show today. Great having you. 
Thank you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.